Some of the most pivotal moments in history have come when an important leader gives an important speech or makes an important decision at a very important time. And out of those moments, something historic happens. Whether they're facing a new challenge, trying to go in a new direction, setting forth a new vision for the nation or the government or the company, uh, something new comes out of that and it requires a response on behalf of the people in that organization or the people of that country or the government that's supporting that leader. You can go back to George Washington his decision to leave office after two terms, extremely significant, something that still holds true to today. And we've added a, an amendment to the Constitution to make sure no one goes beyond that. That decision set the tone for generations to come. You could go back to uh, Teddy Roosevelt, speak softly and carry a big stick. I don't know if he realized that or not, but that statement, that, that vision, that doctrine on his part influenced generations of presidents and how they interacted with the world and built the military and all those different things. George W. Bush, 20 years ago, the, the axis of evil speech saying, if you're not for us, you're against us. Many of us, leaders ourselves, voters included, look at the world, look at how our nation interacts with the world based on something that he said almost 20 years ago. And those, those types of moments are meant to be significant. They're meant to initiate a significant shift, a shift in how those people lead, a shift in how money is spent, a shift in how time and energy are prioritized. It also presents a shift in how people respond to them, how people interact with the world around them. Uh, and, and we experience moments like that all the time, maybe not on an international level, but some of you have experienced this, and some of you are maybe living this now, where at some point, dad, with the first kid, says, no dating until 15 or 16, or 35, or, or whatever rule dads want to throw out. But that moment, and all the younger siblings are watching and listening and seeing how that plays out, because that moment, that decision, sets the tone for how the family's going to interact with the first school dance, how you're going to interact with homecoming, how, who gets to come over for dinner. That impacts when a kid's first kiss is going to happen, right? Because if dad is right there like, no, you will not be interacting with that individual in that context, in that way, it sets a tone for everything. Some of you have lived, uh, lived this in your jobs where at some point the leader, the CEO comes out and says, hey, we're going fully electric by 2030. Seems like a great thing to say, but what happens when that gets said? All of a sudden money gets shifted around, job titles and positions change, promotions and resignations come out of that. You start recruiting different types of kids out of college to that company based on that kind of a vision. And it's in those moments we have a very natural reaction. Really, we have a job in those moments. The job is to lean in and respond accordingly based on what's been said. This is how we act now. This is what we're a part of now. Am I in or am I out? Am I going to help in this process or am I going to in some way actively or passively push back against this. I'm either going to reorient myself around this new message in this direction, or I'm going to find myself heading in a different direction, even if it's a little bit subtle and a little bit slow. And as we continue into Matthew chapter 13 this week, we're continuing with a series we started last week called Terminal. This is the type of message that we see Jesus deliver later on in chapter 13. It's a pivotal moment, a pivotal statement that shifts the course, shifts the direction, shifts the focus for his disciples and all of those who would come after them, including ourselves. So we're going to go to John 13 this morning. If you remember last week, we hit uh, Jesus washing his disciples' feet and how that set the tone where he's like, hey, I have power, I have authority, and with that power and authority, I'm choosing to lower myself, to humble myself as a servant, and I'm going to wash your feet. 
and how if all else fails, start with serve and go from there. And so today picks up on that, where out of that moment, Judas has gotten up to leave and go do what he's going to do. And so we'll pick it up in John 13, starting in verse 31. It says, when he was gone, when Judas was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. It gets into God's glory, and we'll get into that quite a bit more in a few weeks in this series. That deserves its own uh, Sunday morning, so we're going to give it that. But he continues on. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. So Jesus, at this point, his ministry on earth is coming to a close. His teaching is coming to a close. His public living example of what the kingdom looks like on earth is coming to a close. It's all going to be done, and it's time for him to be glorified, time for the Father to be glorified. And, and, And you think, okay, wait. So all the things Jesus did before, he wasn't glorified through those things, through the miracles he wasn't glorified. He wasn't glorified in the groundbreaking teaching. Was he not glorified in the way he interacted and loved people, loved his disciples, loved the least of these? Well, in a way, yes. And yet, as important as all of those things were, they they weren't the purpose for why he came. They were part of the plan, but they weren't the purpose. The purpose gets expressed in some other parts of Scripture. Luke 19, 10, Jesus himself says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That was his mission. That was his purpose for coming. You can go back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. God is laying out the consequences of the fall, of their sin. It says this to Eve, says this to Adam, and then says to the serpent, hey, you have won this battle, but a Messiah will come, and you might nip at his heel, but he's going to crush your head, a foreshadowing of Jesus and why he would show up on this planet. You could go to Abraham and Isaac and the issue on the altar where we find out that God will provide a lamb. It all pointed to this, right? The miracles, the authoritative teaching, the signs that Jesus did to fulfill the prophecies, the presence of God in the flesh, all served to confirm that Jesus was the one that they had been waiting for. But they weren't the purpose. They pointed toward the purpose. The purpose was for him to die, to die to pay for sin, to carry the weight of sin and shame and suffer in our place. Not only to die, but then to raise from the dead to defeat death once and for all. And so Jesus has been on the earth 33 years. He's been revealing God to the world, and now it's time to fulfill his ultimate purpose for coming. And Jesus, in the midst of that, says, I know you've been following me. You've been faithful. You've been great disciples. You've walked in my footsteps. You've started to teach the way I teach. I've allowed you to work some miracles in my name in the way that I would be. He says, at this point, you can't come. This time, you can't help. And I'm sure that was frustrating for some of them who have been working hard and trying to capture what it is that Jesus was laying down. But in this moment, a major event happens, and they can't help. But even though they can't do what he's about to do, he's going to leave something behind for them that's significant in its own right. John 13, 34, Jesus moves on. Hey, you can't come, but a new command I give you. Now, this is significant, right? Remember, as we talked about last week, he is in a terminal moment. Terminal means it's at the end. It's predicted to lead to death. Jesus knows the end is coming. And when you know the end is coming, you have different types of conversations. The tone of the conversation changes. And so Jesus, on his way to the cross, so overwhelmed by that that he's going to sweat blood in just a few hours, 
But in this moment, there's not much time. And so the only thing that's said in these few chapters of John are the most important, vital things, deathbed things, things you only say when you're terminal. And so he says, I have a new command for you. That's a big deal. See, we, we put it in here with the rest of Scripture, and rightly so, but when they would hear that, they would be thinking, command, okay, this is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy type stuff. This is the law stuff. This is the law and the prophets, things that they have on the pedestal, Ten Commandments type stuff. This is like Jesus saying, hey, you know the Ten Commandments? Here is number 11. It's equal. It's right up there with them. This is a new command that I give you. He's putting it on the same pedestal. And this becomes the moment like the moments we talked about at the beginning. This is a new teaching. This is a new challenge. This is a pivotal moment in history for Jesus and his followers. So back to verse 34. Hey, time's coming to a close. You've been great. You can't come with me. You can't help. But a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He says, listen, you can't do what I'm about to do. You can't come where I'm about to go, but here's what I want from you. I want you to love each other. Love the way I love. And I think that, that's a big deal. I think verse 35 is the mind-blowing one where he says, this is how everyone will know that you're my disciples. This, this thing, he makes a one-item list Love each other? That's the one item list. And we can compare this to other teachers and rabbis, those who had come before Jesus, those who came after him. And they were all known for something, right? They got famous because as they looked at the Old Testament scriptures, as they looked at Jewish history and Jewish life in their day, they looked and said, I see something different here. I'm interpreting this there. I think when God said this about marriage back in Genesis, he meant this. When God talked about divorce, this is okay and that's not okay. When God talked about raising children or interacting with the government, all of these rabbis and teachers had a significant thing that they were known for, and you knew who their disciples were based on what those disciples thought. So they'd say, oh, oh, you, you feel that way about young children. Well, you must be a disciple of Rabbi Johnny from 100 years ago because that was his teaching. And so you obviously are kind of a descendant in that line of rabbis because you align yourself with that teaching. You must, someone might say, man, that lady must go to Fieldstone because she won't shut up about family trees, right? So, so you kind of find yourself aligned with a certain teaching or direction where, you know what? They know you're a Fieldstoner. Uh, that, that's probably not the best, uh, <laughs> not the best uh, description. But... Um, <laughs> you're not allowed to repeat that. Uh, you, you know you're, a field, you're part of the Fieldstone family when family trees... I'm going to get in so much trouble. I just, I'm just going to roll with it. Um, family trees come out of your mouth, right? We want to transform family. I hear Brian saying it in conversations with people. I'm like, yeah, Brian's from Fieldstone, right? It, that, it just comes out. That's a significant part of our teaching. It's, it's a significant part of our mission. So People aligned themselves based on the teaching of those rabbis. But Jesus, it wasn't some doctrinal thing. It wasn't some interpretation of an Old Testament scripture. It was a brand new command being put on top of all the laws and the prophets. He said, love each other. Love the way that I love. That was his one-item list by which they would be known. And so all of a sudden, the age-old question and that tension of how do we know? 
How do we know when someone truly follows Jesus? How do we know if someone is a Christ Because it's so easy to fake it, right? You can, you can take an hour on Sunday morning and look like a Christian, so we wonder, how real is it for me? How real is it for them? This, this child that I have that was so solid through their teen years and now kind of things going on in their life, how do I know that it's real? Well, God says, you'll know that they're my disciples by their love for one another. Jesus says, this is how you know they belong to me. This is how you know you belong to me. And I, I love Peter's devotion and his energy and his enthusiasm and all this different stuff that comes into play because he's really kind of distracted and a little bit of a goof. Because Jesus comes to me, he's like, where I'm going, you cannot come, but here's a brand new commandment. Love one another. And Peter's still thinking, Lord, where are you going? Like, Someone's like, what, were you paying attention? He just dropped some major news on you, a major culture shift, and he's stuck on where he's going. And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And he's enthusiastic, but Jesus isn't looking for that from, that from, from him right now. Jesus says, Peter, I'm not asking you to die right now. I'm just asking you to love but Peter, in his own way, is just doing what we all do. He's adding to the list. Because we struggle with that one-item list, right? We, we want more. We want more boxes to check. We want more things that we're supposed to be doing. And there are other things that come along with following Jesus. But remember, he's put this on the pedestal. And Peter's going, yeah, yeah, got it. Love. And I'm going to die for you. No, 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 I'm going to die with you. And Jesus, if you read through verse 38, Jesus kind of rolls his eyes like, oh, is that what you're going to do? We'll see about that. We'll see if that energy makes it through the rest of this night. And Peter obviously fails and, and denies him three times. But we do that too, right? Yes, yes, love. you got to love my brothers and sisters. I'm going to be known for my love. And, and, and I'm going to make sure they know which denomination and, and religious tradition has it right. People need to know. Yes, I'm going to love. But I'm going to make sure people know there's some really good songs out there, but I'm not sure about some of those, those writers' motives. Did you know that people make money off the songs that they write? I'm not sure, that, I'm not sure how I feel about that. i got to make sure people know it. Yes, Lord, yes, loved. That's right. You said one item, short list. But people also need to know that this school district is heading in a very negative direction. I'm not really excited about it. With this small-town, God-fearing history needs to come back out, right? We, we need to know. We need, you know what, Lord? Love, yes. Love, my brothers. I'm going to be known for my love. And they also need to know how you'd feel about that Florida governor, Lord. They need to know. I'm going to make sure to tell them. They need to know that the American church needs to be more like the Chinese underground church. We have strayed too far, Lord. I'm going to love people and make sure people understand that. Lord, people need to know how far this nation has fallen from its biblical roots. Back when we were God-fearing people, when men were men and women were subservient and you were allowed to leave your horse and carriage with the slave while you stopped at the brothel on your way home from church. Back when we were built on the word. And I imagine when we add those things to the one-item list, we get the same eye roll. Oh, is that what you're going to do? Is that what you're going to let them know? Is that how you're going to interact with them? Is that the message you're going to deliver? Fantastic. How about back to my one-item list? Because those things are not on my one-item list. Now, 
That's not to say those things, some of those things aren't important, right? Some of those things are way more important than I give them credit for. I am not the standard for how important some of those things are. But what I do know is none of them are important until you've asked and answered the question, how can I love my brothers and sisters in Christ? How does this neighbor need to be loved right now? How does my kid's teacher need to be loved right now? How does this nurse need to be loved right now? How does this Facebook friend slash acquaintance need to be loved right now? Will this interaction make it clear that I am a Christ follower or will it cast doubt on it? Jesus, at the end of his rope, he's about to leave them in physical form forever, says, when I'm gone, this is what I want you to do. And I can see them leaning in, right? Because this is, remember, this is an intimate moment. Most of this conversation happened in the upper room. It's emotional. He's about to leave. They're starting to figure that out. They're all probably crying at different points in this conversation. Listen, you can't help me this time. Here's what I want you to do. And they lean in, and we lean in, like every great speech in history, right? Like, they just attacked us. What's how is our nation going to respond to this? We need to tune into this speech. Hey, this, this event, how are we going to do this? This well, our company's not doing well. CEO is giving a big presentation. We need to find out which direction we lean in. And I can see them thinking, okay, what's he going to say? Are we supposed to get loud and abrasive like Peter always does? Maybe we're supposed to be just in your face, right? Or maybe, maybe we're just supposed to be hardworking and blue-collar like some of the fishermen in our group. Maybe, because Matthew was a tax collector, and he, he's got a lot of inside information. He could get us in on the inside. Maybe we're supposed to change the world from the inside, like Matthew, our tax collector friend. He can get us jobs in the system, and we can kind of work to infiltrate that way. Or maybe, maybe we're supposed to be militant and take the world by force, like Simon the Zealot, right? He's, you ever notice Simon? He's always wearing a sword. Like, isn't that kind of weird? We've never really fought with anyone. He's always, he's always like, you want us to kill him, Jesus? Like, so, so maybe Jesus because they're going to come for Jesus. Maybe this is the time where we're supposed to draw swords and take the world by force. Or maybe, maybe, I notice he's always really close with John. Maybe we're supposed to be quiet and submissive like young John over there. What's, all right, Jesus, what's it going to be? Which, which way are we going to go? And they lean in and he says, love one another. Love the way I love. Love the way I've loved you. Love one another. They're going to know that you are with me when you love one another. One item list. So what does that look like? Well, i got a great verse for that. 1 John chapter 3. He even starts off very clearly. 1 John 3.16, he says, This is how we know what love is. Right? Because love gets thrown around. You love your wife, you love God, you love pizza. Right? What is love? This is how we know what love is. This is the one-item list kind of love. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And what does that look like? Well, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words and speech but with actions and in truth. This kind of love on every level is sacrificial. It's tangible. Right? It's beyond words and teaching and intelligent arguments. It is tangible 
love. It's like the washing of feet we talked about last week, right? It's not physically washing feet because it's not nearly as gross as it would have been for Jesus, but it's what is the modern-day equivalent in your life? What does it look like to start with serve and go from there? And I want to add to that. If you're not sure, because we come up with all kinds of crazy news that we see every day, and we interact with a bunch of people that maybe try our patience, and we're not sure how to respond to them or what they said or what their kid did or what they're doing, what the government or the medical industry or your school or your business, all these different things that we interact with on a daily basis, sometimes we're just not sure how to take the news. We're just not sure how to lead our family through it. We're not sure how to navigate the next few years of our lives based on it. If you're not sure, love a fellow believer and then go from there. That is the one item list. Love. Love one another. That leads to another important question. Is your first response, is your first reaction love? Is your first response love? If no, I would say, why not? Is it possible you've prioritized other expressions of faith at the expense of love? Good things, godly things, biblical things, right? Biblical knowledge, good behavior, morals, being right, having good thought processes and good theology, recognizing and calling out sins. These are good things. All so important. I would never tell you not to push back on sin. Never. I would never tell you not to challenge untruths. I would never tell you not to hold people accountable to what God has called us to. God is love, but he's never shown himself to be a pushover, and he's never asked his people to be weak, right? In fact, God says that we should be wise and shrewd in the ways of the world. But all of those things feel different when you consider how he interacted with the adulterous woman in John 8. All of those things feel differently when you consider who he spent his time with, who he partied with. All of those things feel different when you consider the fact that just last week we saw that he washed Judas's feet too. An important reminder in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, 1. Interesting few verses here. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love. So if I have that gift that everyone gets excited about, right? Like I'm in touch with the Holy Spirit and God moves through me. And sometimes I'm able to speak into people's lives and have impact on people with the things that I say or all these these, these exciting, great gifts that God gives. If I have all of that, but I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and I have faith that can move mountains, now we're talking about stuff that we, we desire out of our faith, great things like signs of God moving in our life, that we have him and his Holy Spirit is moving and we can encourage people and speak into people's lives, sometimes even see things that God is doing before anyone else can see what he's doing. And we have faith that move mountains, things that we long for. But if you have that and you don't have love, you are nothing. Verse 3, if I give all I possess to the poor, sacrificial generosity, and I give my body over to hardship that I may boast, persecuted for the gospel, but don't have love, I gain nothing. That's significant, guys. That's significant. Without love, all of your other qualities, all of your other pursuits are worthless, even the good ones continues on and tells us what it should look like. Again, lots of tangible things. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. Love does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. Love never fails. Do these things come out? If you're wondering, is, is love my first response? That's the list. Are these the things that come out of you when you're faced with conversations and situations and news and forks in the road? Are they slow to come out? Do they ever come out? If you're struggling uh, with this idea of love, if you're struggling to kind of process where you're at, I want to encourage um, a bit of a process this week. I'd love for you to find some time and with a, with a sheet of paper or a Google Doc or Evernote or whatever your way of taking notes these days is, I'd love for you to just sit down and think through the last few weeks or the last couple months and write down every context in which the wrong response came out. When did the wrong response come out? And start thinking through, are there some common themes there? Are there people? Are there places? Is there certain type of media? Is there other type of stimulus or, or things where you start to see a pattern? When I'm around this person or these people, the wrong response comes out. When I watch this, within a couple days of that, the wrong response comes out. My heart changes. My reactions change. My emotions change. My, the way I view the world changes, right? Is it that person? Because I'd say if it's a pattern, now you can start cutting things out, right? If it's, if it's the same people, cut them out of your... You need to start praying for those people every single day and then limit your interaction with them until your response to them can be seasoned with love. If it's a place... Cut that place out of your life. Cold turkey if you have to. Same with some of the, the uh, media that we take in, some of the different things that we listen to and watch. If they are causing the wrong response to come out, eliminate them. They are keeping you from the one-item list. They must be removed. Got to start asking the question, can people see that I'm a disciple of Jesus by the way I respond? By the way I respond to them, by the way I respond to these moments, by the way I respond to leadership or whatever else. Sometimes it's a pattern. But if you're not seeing a pattern, if it's not people triggering you or situations triggering you or places triggering you, it's possible that it might just be you. And if that's the case, I need to ask the question, are you sure you belong to Jesus? Because the Bible makes it very clear. We could just read through 1 John, and he says it a few times. Like, if the love of God is not in you, you might have a problem. You might not have God. And so ask yourself that question. Because remember Judas. Judas was so close to the light, and then he chose the darkness. And maybe the saddest thing about Judas is that he is not some mythical figure. He is us. I just want to read uh, what this particular book says about that situation. I think it kind of drives home how easy it is to move from the love that we experience in Christ into a different type of a choice. It says, Judas made a wrong turn somewhere and, and courageously pressed ahead instead of admitting his mistake, going back and retracing his steps. Anybody been there? Then ever so gradually, Judas becomes a pawn of the evil one. It is frightening to watch Judas run out into the night where people stumble. 
Is this betrayal a possibility that pertains not simply to the circle of Jesus' immediate followers, but to his followers today as well? The setting of the upper room was a spiritual turning point. The setting of the upper room was a spiritual turning point in which Jesus was doing profound spiritual work. But at the same time, where God is most deeply at work, Satan's attack is that much more acute. It is significant that in Luke's version of the Lord's Supper, it's at this point that Jesus tells Peter that Satan wanted him as well. This is stunning. Satan's desire to sabotage the followers of Jesus reached more levels than we realize. Are those most intimately connected with Christ's life and work today similarly vulnerable? Judas is a warning. We read his story as insiders, thinking it depicts someone else, but Judas is a more disturbing figure than Pilate or Caiaphas or any of the Jewish leaders. Judas saw the light and understood it, but he chose darkness anyway. Judas is the reminder, excuse me, that every day is judgment day and that on any day some faithful follower like Judas or like you and me might turn tail on the light and stumble out into the darkness. If love never comes out of you. Caleb, go back. If you would go back a couple slides and just throw that 1 Corinthians 13, yeah. If patience never comes out of you, if kindness never flows out of you, if your responses include envy, pride, and you're seeing a pattern of dishonoring others, You like to keep record of wrongs. Anger comes out far too easily. If love is never the response, are you sure you belong to Jesus? Now, maybe I'll ask this a different way, and the band's going to come and lead us through one more song before we close, but maybe a better question in a room full of Christians is, is it possible that your faith in Jesus is real enough to change your eternity, but not real enough to change your life? Now, there... Different people have different opinions on this, but I'm one who would say you can be saved and on your way to heaven and still experience hell on earth. Why? Because you believe in Jesus. Hey, I believe that he's God. I believe he died for my sins. Forgive me. Come into my life and have that moment. Have that understanding. Have that belief and acceptance of who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us, which secures our eternity because our sins are forgiven, and yet in life we choose our way. And we we don't submit fully to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And all of a sudden, even though our eternity is set, our lives are unchanged. What a waste of faith. What a waste of life. But here's the thing that we have to capture in the end, is it's not really our love that's being shown anyways. Because we're going to fall short. We don't have it in us. And so it becomes... His love, working in us, changing us, and then flowing out of us into the lives of the people around us and the people that we've been given the privilege of influencing and having an interaction with. And so as the band sings this song, I want you to just process the fact, okay, is love coming out? And is it his love? Am I relying on his strength and his work in my life to be coming out and impacting other people around because his love is not imperfect. His love does not fail. His love is perfect. His love never fails. His love is strong. Listen to this song, and I'll be back up in a minute.